morning again, friends. Bibles are open to Acts chapter 21. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in reverence before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that once again this week we are gathered here together, our hearts aware of your presence all around us, your spirit at work. I ask now, Lord, that through the ministry of your word, you would deepen our convictions in the gospel, that we would know when it is time to have a backbone of steel. That God, you would so deeply root us in grace that we would freely know when it's time to be gracious as well. Father, we pray all of these things to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 21. As Vic read, we're going to go verses 17 to 36. But I want to start off by just establishing two matters of context before we actually get into the details of our passage. Is that okay? All right, we're not going to put it to a vote. Um, the first matter of context is, is simply this. Look at Acts chapter 21, verse 17. It begins with, when we had come to Jerusalem, so you notice already this is another we passage. Luke is along for the ride. He's an eyewitness to this part, part of the missionary team. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. If you remember last week, we were looking at what it meant for Paul to make the hard choice for the sake of the gospel. Do you remember that? He had Agabus, he had the daughters of Philip the Evangelist, he had the disciples. They were prophesying and forewarning him that if he went to Jerusalem, there was persecution, hardships, and chains that awaited him. And yet he went. Have you ever considered what it was that fortified Paul in choosing the hard thing? It is a, it is a deep truth that often the Lord Jesus Christ requires us to do the hard thing. What strengthened and fortified Paul? What strengthens and fortifies us? Well, certainly it is deep conviction. It's sometimes just the sheer force of will. It is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. But we see back in chapter 21 earlier that it was also the strength of Christian fellowship. Look back at chapter 21, verse 4. In Tyre, they found disciples to stay with for seven days. Verse 7, in Ptolemais, they greeted their brothers and sisters and stayed with them one day. Verses 8 to 10, in Caesarea, they stayed with Philip the Evangelist for a number of days. Verse 16, they stayed with Manasin, the Cyprian early convert in Jerusalem. Manasin just for your own in interest, from context, most likely because he's called an early convert in Jerusalem. He's probably among those earliest converts from that very first Pentecost Sunday in Jerusalem some 20 years earlier. And then today's passage begins with this. Once in Jerusalem, the brothers greeted them gladly and warmly. Look, Christian man or woman, 
Never underestimate the power of fellowship and encouragement. There are times in your life where God is calling you to do a hard thing for a difficult season. And the warm greeting of the brothers and sisters will buoy you up. It will strengthen your resolve. It will serve as respite. Can you think of times in your life where that's been the case? Maybe you felt like you were right at the end of your rope and you couldn't go on another day. But a kind, encouraging word from a brother or sister in Christ. Strengthened your resolve and gave you a moment of respite. Often I hear from people, they say things like, I do not need to go to church to be a Christian. Have you ever heard that? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. They're right. You don't need to go to church to be saved. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You do not need to go to church to be saved. You also don't ever need to spend time with your wife to be married. I don't recommend either. Christian fellowship sustains Christian men and women through the difficult times. So Paul here in verse 17 with his missionary team, he comes to Jerusalem. He's warmly greeted by the brothers after a long and arduous journey, his third missionary journey. And friends, we just have to pause on that for a moment for context before we get into this passage and feel that moment. Long journey, third journey, all over the known world, not traveling first class, met with some fruit and with lots of persecution. And yet he comes to Jerusalem and he's refreshed. So what does that mean for us this morning? Well, the first thing that I would suggest to you is if you find yourself weary in your walk with the Lord, seek out Christian fellowship. And if you find yourself strong in your walk with the Lord, then be a brother or sister who greets warmly. Encourage and refresh other Christians, other pilgrims on their way to the celestial city. That's the first matter of context I wanted to set out before we get into it. Here's the second one. Chapter 21, verse 17 forward marks a significant shift in Paul's ministry. It's an inflection point in the account in the account in Acts. It's the moment where Paul goes from being the apostle to the Gentiles, traveling freely and fruitfully all around the Mediterranean, all around the known world, on the offensive with the gospel, to becoming a prisoner in chains for the gospel. He goes from offensive gospel propagation to defensive. It's not by accident or by chance that his ministry, notably in every one of the cities that he went to, 
began with the Jews in the synagogues, and then when he was in those cities and the synagogues after mixed reception, he then moved out to the Gentiles and to the nations. Another parallel. Luke records this in Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Luke is not only a doctor and a historian, Luke is also a theologian in the way that he sets it out. He wants you to get a point. It's not by accident that this account begins back on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Do you remember that in Acts chapter 1 and 2? And the account will end in Rome. You see, what, Paul want, what, what Luke wants you to know in this account is that this message of gospel propagation begins in Jerusalem, goes to Rome, begins with Paul traveling freely as an apostle to the Gentiles, and finishes with Paul traveling in chains to Rome. Here's the point. Although from this point forward, Paul's ministry is in chains, it's by those chains that he ends up taking the gospel to the highest courts of the Roman Empire. Let's press into that one a little bit further. This gospel message that began in Jerusalem as a Jewish sect, the Messiah had come, the Lord Jesus Christ, then traveled all over the known world at the hands of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and has now, through the millennia, come to you and me by Paul in chains. Well, there's a couple things to note about that. The first one to take note of is maybe obvious, and that's this. That God's purposes are never handcuffed by circumstance. He uses everything for his glory. You can see that here with Paul's coming imprisonment here in chapter 21. But you can also see it when you consider your own life. Look, Paul is going to write many of his letters from prison. Letters that encouraged individual Christians and, in, and encouraged churches from prison. Letters that encouraged you and me to bring us to faith and to encourage us to remain faithful under persecution. Paul wrote those from prison. God's purposes for Paul were not thwarted by the chains. In fact, they were furthered. Paul saw God's purpose in his chains and in his hardship. Look, it's throughout the Pauline corpus. It's throughout all of his letters. But I want to just draw your attention to one. You can turn there if you'd like. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Listen to what Paul says about imprisonment. He's writing to Christians and he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul did not see his chains as an impediment to God's purposes. 
he saw God using the chains to bring about his good purposes. Let's make it personal. If Paul were at St. George's Anglican Church this morning, and after the service, he was having a coffee and a cookie with you out in the fellowship hall, and you went up to him and you're like, hey, Paul, how's it going? And he was like, hey, you, tell me all about your life. And you started telling him all about your life, all about coming to faith in Christ and all about the details and the joys and your family and your dreams and your aspirations. And you even chanced telling him about the challenges and the hardships and the persecutions that you've faced. Paul would look you square in the eye over his coffee this morning and he'd say, dear brother or sister, I want you to know that what has happened to you serves to advance the gospel. Beset with trials and varying degrees of persecution, a passage like one in Philippians 1 and the one we have here in Acts 21 Invite a different perspective on the hardships and the chains in your own life. Right now, run a little thought experiment. Take a step back from the busyness of your life and your thoughts and your day. And consider how your present hardship can serve to advance the gospel. Think about it. In what way is God using what anyone else would see as loss for his purposes in and through you? Look, this kind of view or this kind of approach, it, it, it redeems your hardship. It redeems your suffering. First of all, because this is true and therefore the chains, the hardship, the persecution that you face are not random but part of a plan. Therefore, they should not be loathed or disdained but embraced. And secondly, it redeems your hardship because if you believe that God has a purpose and a plan through your hardship, then you can have confidence that God has not abandoned you just because things are difficult. I run into Christians sometimes who don't really get this. Hardship or chains or persecution for the gospel fall upon them. And then their hardship is compounded by guilty feelings. They think things like, Wow, I really shouldn't be faced with so many hardships. Now they have the hardship and they have the compounding of the guilt on top of it because they think that they shouldn't be faced with that sort of thing. They then sometimes take it a step further and they say, I must be faced with hardship because I took a step wrong. You know, I'm, I'm doing something that's outside of God's will. And listen, if you're a Christian, that's a good place to start in prayer by asking that question. But here with Paul... We see a man who is doing exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ would have him do, and it lands him in chains. 
Here's the point. Don't waste your present hardship. Don't hold it at arm's length as something that you loathe and despise and wish weren't the case. If you find yourself in chains, embrace it as from the Lord. Look for ways to use that hardship to further and to serve the gospel. You you can ask that question even this morning. What are the chains that are besetting me right now? What's God's purpose in them? For strengthening the gospel in me, in myself. Is there something about this present imprisonment and hardship that's pressing me more deeply into the riches of the grace of Jesus? Something for yourself. Maybe it's something that's useful to your family if you embrace it as from the Lord. Maybe it's something that's useful for your community and people that are watching you. How could that possibly work? Well, see, if you're a Christian man or woman and you embrace those chains as from the Lord and useful to him, you will be showing everyone watching that Jesus is worth more than this momentary hardship and trial. In the first place, God's purposes are not thwarted by chains. The second thing that I want you to see in this is um, Paul is now going to be put in chains for the rest of his ministry. In the first place, it means that God's purposes are not thwarted by these circumstances. And in the second place, I want you to see that it's precisely in chains that the gospel moves forward and advances. Over the last couple of years, our executive council went through a process of strategic planning. And, um, you know, there's no strategic planner or corporate leadership guru that would ever tell you to map out this as a critical pathway for gospel (laughs) propagation. Hardship, suffering, chains. And yet, it's the consistent picture throughout Scripture. The gospel moves forward in chains. It's also true in lived experience. I've shared with you guys my great love for missionary biographies. It's it's an overstatement. It's a love-hate thing, right? On the one hand, I read missionary biographies, and I'm so stirred and encouraged But on the other hand, I'm always so convicted. I always read them. I'm like, man, am I even a Christian? But I want to recommend one to you. Um, It's called Through Gates of Splendor. Have you read it? It's a story of Jim Elliott and four of his friends written by Jim's wife, Elizabeth. These five men, in the prime of their life, they were the best of the best, the sharpest of the sharpest. They were, you know, head of their class in universities. They were athletic, they were smart, and they gave themselves to taking the gospel to an unreached people group in the forests of Ecuador. They ended up dying martyrs' deaths, speared to death on the beaches. 
today, most, if not all, of that unreached people group in Ecuador profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel moves forward under persecution and hardship. So you look at your present hardship, you look at your present chains, and you think, man, RD, the cost is too great. Sure, the gospel might move forward, but the cost is too great. And in fact, the opposite is true. You know, Jesus said this, and we really have to wrestle with this one. If you want to gain your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lay down your life, if you lose your life, you'll gain it. There's this counterintuitive truth that every time you try to avoid hardship and push the chains away and make life decisions to avoid any kind of persecution, you think that in that you're going to find a good life and an easy life. What actually happens is your very life rots from the inside and you deflate. Elizabeth Elliot said, after her husband's martyrdom, there is nothing worth living for unless it's worth dying for. It's a countercultural truth at the center of the gospel. And you can feel it in your bones when I say it, can't you? There's a dignity, there's a strength in such endeavors. Paul is now going to finish off the rest of his ministry in chains, in prison. And the gospel will advance through that sacrifice. Faced with persecution, some Christians will flounder and capitulate. Some will suffer shipwreck to the faith. The Bible has a clear take on that. If you're a Christian and when persecution ramps up, you crumble, you fall, you abandon the faith, then you were never a Christian in the first place. Because opposition, hardship, and persecution for the truly Christian man or woman, it will serve like a refining fire. Being in chains will be like a refining fire that will burn away the dross of your life. It will smelt a precious metal more precious than gold. Paul's ministry is going to continue in chains. The gospel moves forward in chains and in persecution. So when you and I are pressed and squeezed by trials, what comes forth? Chapter 21 forward, Paul is imprisoned for the gospel, and that is exactly how the good news reaches the highest courts of the empire and ultimately through millennia reaches you and me. Don't flag under persecution, but press into it, embrace it for the glory of Christ. All right, take a breath. You might be thinking that's a little melodramatic, isn't it, R.D.? Surely it's hyperbole, right? We live in Canada. How much persecution could we possibly face? Well, buckle up. 
We've enjoyed over a century in Canada of playing a home game. Laws and cultural moorings were all established on Christian principles. But over the last five years or so, there has been an acceleration towards satanic, ungodly wickedness that has seen the criminalization of Christian belief in practice. I won't get into the details right now. If you want to talk about it, we can talk about it later. I'm not saying, I, I do not foresee a time in our lifetime where Christians in Canada are going to be killed or even thrown in jail. I don't foresee it. It might happen. But what I do think will happen is a progression. I think we need to prepare for the fact that our profession of biblical truth as best for human flourishing under God will put us at odds with the state and the progression will be simple. The first thing is that churches like St. George's who preach the Bible, we will lose our charitable status. It's the first thing that's going to happen. The second thing that's going to happen is we'll probably get fines. And then it will probably proceed to imprisonment and who knows what from there. Chains. What will you do? Friends, we will count the cost. We will embrace the shame. We will strengthen our resolve. We will pray that the Lord will use our chains to, as Paul said, share the good news and embolden the brothers. So that's our second point of context. Right? The first one is the importance of Christian fellowship to strengthen you during difficult times. And the second one is, from this point forward, Paul will be in chains and those chains are under the sovereign hand of God the way that the gospel moves forward. Embrace them. With that in mind, let's look quickly at two things from our text in detail. In this passage, you will see that the gospel forms Christians and churches to be both soft as a willow and hard as the Niagara Escarpment. Both. That the gospel, when it's had its good work in your heart, will make you, in some circumstances, remarkably compliant and gracious. And in other circumstances, that same gospel is going to make you hard as flint. That's why Paul says things like to the Corinthians, therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But when? When to be soft and when to be hard? How? What does it look like? Well, we often get that one wrong, don't we? Another way to think about the Christian life and the Christian church, individual Christians and biblical churches are best when they are rock hard at the core and soft and permeable on the periphery. Do you know what I mean by that? 
on core issues, hard as flint. On secondary, outside, peripheral matters, soft and permeable and gracious. Now the problem is, far too often, individual Christians and churches are the exact opposite. They are mush at the core, not really clear on their convictions, and then rock hard on peripheral issues. It's a problem. Well, let's look at verses 18 to 26 to see a case where Paul is soft as a willow. Verse 18. Paul has now made his way into Jerusalem and he's greeted warmly. He's also confronted by James. Now, James at this point is the leader of the mother church in Jerusalem. If Paul embodies the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles, then James is the embodiment of the gospel to the Jews. Verse 19, Paul is sitting down with James and the elders in the church in Jerusalem, and he begins to recount his missionary journeys. I would have loved to have been there for that, wouldn't you? I kind of wish Dr. Luke would have gone into more detail, but who am I to say? I just kind of imagine Paul sitting there with his missionary team and then the elders and James in the church in Jerusalem, and Paul saying, guys, you're not, you're not going to believe it. Like, I took this message of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is Savior. People have to bow their knee and be born again. I took this message not only to the Jews. When I went to cities, I went to the synagogues first to the Jews. But when those guys turfed me out of the synagogues, I took it to the Gentiles. And these Gentiles, they believed. They repented. They were born again. They received the Holy Spirit. He's like, it was, it was fantastic. They were adopted into the family of God. Verse 20. So the elders and James, they heard this account and they glorified God. Before we move off this point, let me just bring out two things. The first one is the example that Paul sets in telling the story. He doesn't brag. <laughs> you know, we live in a social media world where everything is geared around you telling other people how awesome you are. And if you do that, first of all, you're going to look like a tool. And secondly, people are going to knock you down. It's called the tall poppy syndrome. If you shape your stories so that you are awesome, people will feel a moral obligation to knock you down. That's, so Paul doesn't do that. The second thing to pull from this is that Paul doesn't tell the stories in such a way that he is the hero. We know that from verse 20 because they heard the stories and they glorified God. All right, let's move on. Verses 20 to 26. What ensues here um, can be a little bit confusing to us in 2024 because we lack some of the context that would have been really clear to the original audience. Sometimes this interaction... Paul coming back from his third missionary journey, you know, um, apostle to the Gentiles, 
back to Mother Church Jerusalem, James with all of the elders and the Jewish believers, sometimes this is misconstrued as Paul versus James. Sometimes this moment is wrongly framed up as a gospel of grace versus a gospel of works. Sometimes people read this moment wrong and they think that what's happening here is a debate between Paul saying we are saved by grace and James saying we are saved by works. I have to confess to you guys, even my great hero Martin Luther caught this one wrong in whiffs. Martin Luther referred to the epistle of James as the epistle of straw. So what's going on here? In this passage, do we see the Apostle Paul capitulating under the weight of James and the Jerusalem Mother Church? When he agrees to undergo all of this purification ritual, is he submitting to the works of the law and so giving up justification by grace alone through faith alone? No. It's clear from Scripture. Paul and James would agree on salvation. They would both agree that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Neither of them would, either, would ever say that a, that, a, that a Christian is saved by the works that they do. So what was at issue when Paul returned to Jerusalem? Now, this is the key to understanding when to be soft. What was at stake here in this interaction was not salvation. It was discipleship. Paul was being accused of telling Christians, people who had already been saved, that they no longer needed to keep the law. But this matter was resolved back in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council, and here it is restated in verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, see, they're Christians already. We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what is sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Paul submits Freely in this circumstance, he is soft, he is compliant, and he is tender. Because the issue is not about salvation, it's about discipleship. It's the same model that Paul put forward when he submitted Timothy to circumcision as a matter of discipleship. But then when he refused to submit Titus to circumcision for the same reason, See, Paul is showing us that when it comes to discipleship matters, the gospel ought to make us gracious with other Christians. Uh, the Bible commentator F.F. Bruce said this eloquently about this moment. He said, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to its own emancipation. Sometimes Christian freedom can become a form of enslavement 
if you misunderstand it and misapply it. So where the gospel of grace is not at stake, Paul is free to conform. What does that, what does that mean for us today? Well, it means that I thank God for our church's partnership in the gospel coalition. You got you to understand, right? In fighting within denominations about matters of discipleship, that's a luxury that's afforded to churches who are not being persecuted. When I look into the future, I see sort of a uh, post-denominational Christianity rising up under persecution in Canada where we will find deep and abiding fellowship as Anglicans with Baptists. Right? Some of us baptize infants, some of us baptize believers, but those are just matters of discipleship. We are saved by grace, by faith in Christ, so we can be gracious and soft with one another on these secondary matters. That's, that's where Christians are soft. Okay. Verses 27 to 36. When the gospel of grace is not at stake, Paul is free to conform, but that's not always the case. On matters of the gospel, he stands hard as flint and faces whatever persecution comes. Verse 30, Paul is dragged out and the crowd tries to kill him. Verse 32, they eventually stop beating him when the soldiers arrive. Verse 33 to 36, Paul is imprisoned by the soldiers to escape the violence of the crowd. So what's going on here? Why in this case do we see Paul not just compliant and easy to get along with? You know, if he could have probably stopped the beating at any moment by just recanting. He could have avoided prison by just figuring out some fancy way to be compliant and soft. Why was he soft before and not here? Well, it's because in his interaction with James and the believers in the Jerusalem church, salvation issues were not at stake, so he was able to be soft. Here in this case, the very gospel itself is at stake. See, Paul was descended upon by the crowd because he had brought Trophimus, the Ephesian man, into the city. Look at verse 29. Verse 28 tells us that the crowd falsely accused Paul of not only bringing Trophimus the Ephesian into the city, but bringing him right into the temple. Now that doesn't seem like such a big deal to us, right? You think, well, so what? He brought him to church, but that's not the way it was. Everyone understood that to bring a Gentile man into the heart of the temple was punishable by death. Look, back then in the temple, there was the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. And the court of the Gentiles, between the two, there was a four and a half foot high wall that separated the two. Gentiles like Trophimus the Ephesian would have never been allowed to go past that wall on pain of death. Archaeological digs have recently shown that this wall not only existed, but it had an inscription on it in both Greek and in Latin, that if any Gentile came past that wall, 
they were responsible for their own death that would ensue. So the crowd has these trumped-up charges against Paul. We're going to kill you because you brought Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple. Even though Paul knew that these were trumped-up charges, Scripture tells us he didn't bring them into the temple, he just brought them into the city. Paul responded with steely resolve. I imagine um, Paul, as the blows from the crowd are raining down on his head, thinking, man, I didn't even bring Trophimus the Ephesian into the temple. But if I wanted to, I would have. So go ahead and beat me, if you will. The gospel saves Gentiles like Trophimus the Ephesian and ushers them right into the very manifest presence of God. So even though I didn't do it, that's what you're accusing me of. Go ahead and beat me to death. Because the gospel's at stake. You can't keep Trophimus out. Because God doesn't keep him out. So if that's what you're accusing me of, even though I didn't do it, steely resolve is what you get in return. In Ephesians chapter 2, that's probably what Paul had in mind when he said, but now in Christ Jesus, listen to this, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Just like Trophimus, the Ephesian. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In this second chunk of scripture, Paul now models what it means to be immovable and steadfast on gospel issues. Paul is deeply convinced that the gospel saves Gentiles, the unlikely, and he's willing to die for it. So the issue here in Acts 21 is Trophimus and his inclusion into the people of God. That's the issue. The issue for us today is how that inclusion comes about. Okay, this is going to get a little thorny, so be careful. Inclusivity and inclusion is a cardinal secular value in our world today. There are all kinds of false gospels that promise a form of utopian salvation if we will merely find ways to include for the sake of inclusivity. You know, cultural Marxism, critical theory, you guys know what I'm talking about. The problem with every one of these cultural values that goes against the gospel is that they are utopian by nature. They believe that human beings can bring about a paradise or a saving of their own. They believe that this will happen through identity politics. 
They believe that the best way to bring about salvation and inclusion is by everyone claiming their own personal identity group and functioning on identity politics. It means that human beings today in the secular world are encouraged to identify as a white man, a black woman. The problem is that as those critical categories begin to escalate through intersectionality, we can talk about this over coffee, it actually produces the exact opposite to what it promises. It's a cultural anti-gospel that claims to bring about inclusivity, but actually fractures everyone to the nth. And so we as Christians, like Paul had to stand up for Trophimus and for his inclusion because of his identity in Christ, we must now be hard as steel. There is no true salvation, there is no true inclusivity found anywhere but in being born again in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single human being stands equal at the foot of the cross. Sinners in need of a savior. Your identity is not based on the color of your skin or your sex. Your identity is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because like Trophimus the Ephesian, you have repented, he has saved you, and you have been brought near. The wall of hostility has been brought down. Soft and pliable when it comes to discipleship and secondary issues. Rock hard when it comes to salvation and the gospel. Look, persecution's coming. But the gospel will go forward in chains. It will. How are we going to endure? Warm Christian fellowship. Embrace the persecution as the way that gospel propagation happens. Be rock hard and immovable on salvation issues, saved by grace, and be soft and accommodating on secondary issues. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. That is the very word of God. We thank you for the witness of your spirit that bears witness to the truth. I ask and pray again, God, that you would strengthen our convictions and deepen our resolve. Grant us wisdom to know when to be gracious and soft and grant us the determination to endure to the end and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.